Hello, and welcome to the AMA Steps Forward podcast series. We'll hear from healthcare leaders nationwide about real-world solutions to the challenges that practices are confronting today. Solutions that help put the joy back into medicine. AMA Steps Forward program is open access and free to all at stepsforward.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Dr. Jill Jin, Senior Physician Advisor with the AMA Steps Forward team, and I am your host for today. Today on the podcast, we are joined by guest Margaret Bavis, a nurse practitioner who has her doctor in nursing practice and currently practices at Community Health in Chicago. She is also an assistant professor at Rush University College of Nursing. Our topic today is how community health assesses and optimizes patients' social determinants of health and how this has helped their patient population. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Why don't we start with you telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. As you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a nurse practitioner and assistant professor at Rush University College of Nursing. I have a clinical practice at Community Health, which is part of an academic practice partnership between Community Health and Rush University's College of Nursing. And I primarily train nurse practitioner students at Community Health. In addition to my clinical training program, I also teach in the in Russia's Doctor of Nursing Practice Family Nurse Practitioner Program. I direct our clinical simulation program, which is heavily informed by my clinical work at Community Health. I've been an NP for over 20 years. I've worked in a variety of settings. My professional interests are around NP student training and working with under-resourced communities and in clinical reasoning. This year, I was selected for a fellowship with the Society for Diagnosis in Medicine, and I'm working on how to better assess diagnostic reasoning in MP students. I am also a wife, mother of three, and in my free time, I have been studying Spanish. So, Wow. I was just going to say what free time, but... Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about community health specifically? So what it is, who it serves, and what the mission is. Absolutely. So community health really is a phenomenal place. And probably many of your listeners may have had some, and if they're in the Chicagoland area, may have crossed through the doors of community health as a volunteer or a trainee at some point. It was established in 1993 by physician Dr. Serafino Garella. He was a nephrologist, and prior to starting Community Health, he was wondering why so many patients were reaching him in end-stage renal disease and why they had lacked care for the prevention and management of their preceding chronic diseases. So in identifying this problem, he identified a gap in our system that patients without access to health care, either via private or public insurance, had no access to these preventative and chronic disease management. So he brought together some colleagues and they opened the first community health site. It started as a small storefront clinic, but it has grown over these past close to 30 years to a fully functioning comprehensive health center with a central location that houses 15 exam rooms, a dental suite, a full pharmacy that provides a 90-day supply of medications to the patients, full laboratory services, health education, counseling, again, all free of charge. 
in addition to this main site, they also in the last two years, which is amazing because yes, during the pandemic, opened two innovative microsites that partner with community-based agencies to provide both in-person and augmented telehealth services to patients. Community health has a unique model that brings together volunteers, donors, community partners to serve thousands of Chicago's uninsured adults. It has a small core staff of 45 and then over 1,000 volunteers, which includes physicians, specialists, residents, pharmacists, nurses, nurse practitioners, med students, pharmacy students, nursing students, interpreters, and lab techs, basically everyone. It provides high-quality health care, serves as a patient-centered medical home to more than 4,000 patients annually, and provides services six days per week. Wow. What a great story. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds too great to be true, almost, what you're describing. Um, and of course, the natural question is, which you alluded to, is you know, how is this all funded? I know you said it's largely volunteer-based in terms of the staff and the providers. And what about the operating costs? Sure. So, you know, again, since it does rely so much on the huge base of volunteer, primarily providers, that core staff of 45 and the facilities are funded through grants and donations. So they really have figured out how to maximize finances and really trim to the core essentials that are needed for for running the clinic. And then these extensive partnerships that community health has with the major medical centers here in the Chicagoland area really facilitates a lot of the additional care, be it referral for specialty services or diagnostic tests. And they've established a pretty extensive network of partnering agencies to provide those free of charge. Wow. That's phenomenal. And then so, of course, you know, with that patient population, there are, you know, lots of these social determinants of health issues and that's our topic for today. So I do know that community health did identify that area as an important area of exploration in their recent strategic plan. Can you tell us more about what that means on a practical level? Absolutely. So community health really has a clear mission to serve people without essential health care. So the services, again, as I mentioned in the introduction to community health, currently targets that gap in our system for those who cannot afford or don't have access to private or public insurance. So all of our patients are low income at or below 300% of the federal poverty guidelines. Most are immigrants So many who carry a history of trauma and have had little access to primary care previously. So as you can imagine, addressing social determinants of health is at the core of our provision of care to our patients. This involves considering the whole patient, the setting in which one lives and works, the individual challenges of day-to-day life, as well as the personal needs and priorities of the patient. On a practical level, that means understanding, for example, a patient's work schedule and how it might impact their ability to take their medications consistently, for example, a multi-dose insulin regimen, understanding living conditions and how that may impact illness, for example, home isolation during COVID in multi-generational homes with only one bathroom, and understanding access to food and physical activity when considering counseling on lifestyle. 
So in addition, many of our patients speak a language other than English. So we also have volunteer interpreters to remove the challenge of that language barrier. And all of our printed materials are available in either Spanish or Polish, which are the predominant languages that are spoken amongst our population. But for many patients, this is the first clinic space where they feel their specific needs are taken into consideration. And I think it is because of the thoughtful approach to social determinants of health. And is that approach, are those questions and issues, are they kind of just brought up during a first visit or is there kind of a formalized intake process to identify the needs? So there is a process, and I would say it falls a little twofold. So for every patient that is registered at Community Health, they do fill out a formal social determinants of health screening or screener, similar to what listeners may be familiar with in other practice sites or in the hospital setting. And then that document is uploaded into our EMR and reviewed by the social worker who oversees all of the social determinants of health screening. But it's also available for reference by providers and also integrated then. We can integrate that into our encounters or visits with our patients to identify if this is somebody who doesn't have access consistently to foods. We might connect them to a food bank or if there are some other issues in terms of housing, safety, we would connect, could connect them with the social worker to try and remediate that. But once a patient screens positively, it's either addressed by the social worker and or the provider. One way we do that is through a program called NowPow. Again, another pretty innovative project started by a physician, who Stacy Lindau, who identified a need. But it's a personalized community, web-based referral platform where it will match social service agencies or resources directly to a patient by their zip code and address. So we can create a customized referral list for patients or resources close to their home based on what needs have been identified either in our conversation or on the, on the screener. Another way is through this creation of the microsites. The two microsites that I mentioned were actually established within community organizations in different zip codes that we recognized as being some of the largest holes for our patient population. And so community health partnered with social service community organizations within those communities and zip codes to establish this microsite so that they could connect patients to healthcare, but also keep them within a site that provided other resources. So for example, ELL classes, immigration resources, different programming like that exists at the sponsoring agencies that our microsites are now housed in. Gotcha. And does this level of outreach and planning happen kind of pre-visit or is it during a visit or kind of just ongoing? Sure. In terms of the the formalized screener, that can be addressed separately outside of the visit. So if somebody screens positive on one of the components of the screener, the social worker can produce resources and reach out to the patient and connect them with resources either via NowPow or through one of our sponsoring agencies. Outside of that, a lot of our social determinants of health comes through our holistic approach as a clinic to the patient. And so that is something that happens pretty organically during our visit. I would say that the 
culture of community health amongst providers is to be very patient forward and prioritize understanding the whole picture. You know, in simple things like when you're doing a history and and getting a good social history of where somebody works and what kind of work they do and how much, how many jobs they have to have or how many or what their living arrangements are like and what their environment that they're living in is foods. Like, are they in a basement apartment that has, you know, water damage and mold and that's, you know, perhaps contributing to their reactive airway or asthma presentation, or is it about when you're talking about healthy eating and what resources somebody has for fresh fruits and vegetables? So we kind of address it in both ways. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, these things, these, these topics are so important and like you're saying, it's the going upstream and just kind of finding out the root of their reactive airway disease instead of our, you know, often traditional approach of just treating it. I, I'm curious how long you have for each patient appointment. Yeah, that's that's always the tricky one. Community health is a huge training site. That's part of the huge volunteer base is that there are a lot of different training programs run out of there. So for example, I'm overseeing the nurse practitioner training program. Pretty much every med school in the city has a med student clinic. Many of the hospitals have a residency clinic. And so the time allotment, you know, really depends on your training program and what year you are in your training program. But the vast majority of our slots are 30 minutes. And that seems very generous if you're coming from private practice or the FQHC world. But you have to remember that our patients, we also have to oftentimes use interpreters and secondly, that many of our patients have not had access to healthcare for a very long time. So there's a backlog of concerns that need to be addressed. And part of the whole social determinants of health component is building that trust with patients so that they will share those needs with you so that you can properly address them and partner with them. So it's a 30 minutes that goes by really, really fast. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's generous at all. I think it's ambitious. I feel like I would need 45 or an hour. But you're right. It's the trust component that it, it takes time to build. And it's it's essential to do that, to take the time to do that. You know, I'm sure you have many patient stories and anecdotes about how impactful this has been. Are there any that you could share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just in preface to that, I think one of the important things to remember and why I think some of the really impactful stories that we have are because of the model of community health, but because its intention is to provide comprehensive health services free of charge to some of the most vulnerable patients, it also looks on building uh, long-term relationships between patients and a primary care provider. So despite the fact, I know I mentioned that we have a lot of training programs, there's a huge effort to try and make sure that patients have a continuity provider that they stay with over time. So what that has meant for me as a provider, I've been at Community Health for close to nine years. My time there, I see patients 16 hours, about two to two full days a week. And my panel is, last time I checked, I'm at 285 patients for my panel. And most of those patients I have been seeing consistently for nine years. That really changes some of the 
you know, relationship building and really what we can do with patients over time. Obviously, I've lost patients to when they are able to access healthcare, which I'm always happy, happy, happy for that, or for those who have, you know, returned back to their countries of origin. But I think that main focus of trying to create a safe space and a place of trust is really essential. So uh, many of my success stories come from that. I think the most important thing about understanding the role of a of a clinic or a health center like community health is what it what it does for the rest of the healthcare system. So by providing this free and consistent care to our patients, we end up saving area hospitals. I think the recent stat is close to nine million dollars annually because we help to keep patients healthy and out of the emergency department for unmanaged conditions. During the pandemic, you know, that was really super prevalent because we were one of the few places in the community that stayed open for in-person visits for, for so many of these vulnerable patients. My stories generally center around either chronic disease or identifying something early and getting somebody quickly to care. But my first story is about a patient who came to me with very poorly controlled type 2 diabetes and had been suffering with chronic pancreatitis. He had uh, unfortunately shown up in the emergency room, been hospitalized several times before she came to me. And what essentially was at the root of this was that she was resistant to starting insulin. She didn't trust healthcare providers. She felt people weren't listening to her. She, she had a pretty suspicious approach to most people that she met. But I was able, it was one of my greatest success stories that I was able to partner with her and get her started on insulin. And it has really dramatically changed her life and kept her out of the hospital for now two years. So I'm, I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. How many visits with her did you have before she agreed to start on insulin? Sure. I, I have a philosophy that <laughs> that I, I'm never looking at things as just one-time visits. Um, and I think that's my joy of being a primary care provider, that I always am strategically planning and planting seeds. It took me actually not too long, it's two to three visits, because I think part of what was missing is that it was very clear from a health, health provider standpoint to see that she was hyperglycemic. She was losing weight. She had all of the polys of, you know, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia. She was losing weight. It was very clear that her problems were coming from her uncontrolled diabetes. But for her, all she could experience was this sort of, you know, this chronic epigastric pain. And that's really all she wanted to talk about. So my approach was to, you know, validate what was going on with her epigastric pain and then sort of come up beside her and say, you know, let's work on that and this at the same time. The big success was just having somebody say, yeah, I, I validate you that it sounds, you know, you have been very uncomfortable and in a lot of pain and suffering. With that, I was able to get her just to try, you know, first, like, let's just try a baby dose and see if that works while we're also working on managing your abdominal pain. So that was a a very feel-good moment for me. And when her weight started to come back up, it's like one of my great joys every time I weigh her. <laughs> She's no longer under under 100 pounds. And then the other story is really about, about screenings and prevention. I had another patient come to me within the last year who had actually been turned away from an 
unfortunately from an ED in the area. Again, another person presenting with abdominal pain. When I examined her, she had splenomegaly, which was a pretty dramatic finding to find in primary care. And I was able to urgently get her connected. I got her an urgency teeth from our, through our partners, and we got her urgently connected to um, another partnering hospital for care. And so they were able to diagnose her lymphoma and get her started on treatment. And currently she's, she's doing much better, but obviously we'll see how it goes. But I, I felt that was a good example too of, of some of the things some of the typical, sadly, typical things that we we deal with at community health. And by no means do I think that I have any of the special sauce in any of this. Really, all the providers, if you speak to any provider at community health, they all have stories similar to the ones I just expressed. And I think it's just a reflection on the kind of person who practices there and the, and the kind of environment that we're in where we're really very, very patient-focused. Wow, thank you for sharing those. And I think you t- your point about the trust and the importance of the longitudinal follow-up is just so key. And, you know, my question about the number of visits, that was a leading question because, yeah, it, it doesn't happen on the first or second or maybe not even the 10th visit, but it's just about slowly building that relationship. And then, you know, the goal is that ultimately pays off. Yeah. I absolutely saw that too during the pandemic. I think everybody knows how hard the pandemic has been. And definitely when we started shifting gears and finally had the vaccine, you know, we all were taxed with an uphill battle against a lot of misinformation. And I really cashed in a lot of my trust with my patients. I'm not normally, you know, pretty forceful about, you know, things, but um, having spent, you know, nine years with people, I felt this was our chance to say, you know, this is really something that's going to save your life, you know, despite what you're hearing, you know, from the TV or from people in your community. And that I think was a huge, huge asset, you know, that I did have those longstanding relationships. And I had been there, you know, through through their previous trials and tribulations with their health and well-being that it served us in that context. We can never undervalue the role of a primary care provider in somebody's life. Yes, totally. Do you, I'm curious, do you ever have patients who, like you said, if they get acquire health insurance through employment or not, do, do they stay with you? Is that allowed? Or? Yeah. So unfortunately, currently, my only practice is at community health because my the remainder of my time is, is, is spent teaching. So it's actually a, a sadness for me, I uh, too. So they do often ask and try to see if they can see me somewhere else. But unfortunately, our, our charter is so specific at Community Health that we can no longer see somebody once they have insurance. Otherwise, you know, the whole funding, the delicate funding balance would not be sustainable. It's always a great compliment. I really appreciate it. And, and I really enjoy getting letters back from their, you know, providers that they go on to. And that, that's been a few of our great success stories, too, is when I get thank you letters back from I had a patient many uh, several years ago who her husband had lost his job. So they had lost their insurance. She was type two diabetic, had already had an amputation. And she came to me and, you know, was really struggling getting to her goal, um, A1C. 
And we were able to work on it together and get her to goal. When her husband got insurance again and she she left us, she told her provider, who had been her provider pre-coming to Community Health, about her time with me. And the provider sent me just the most lovely letter <laughs> thanking me. I, I just felt that that too, you know, is what it's all about. You know, we're all we're all part of the same, you know, journey with our patients. And I just felt so happy that I could be a part of, of that patient's journey. And I think it's nice to remember that, you know, I think we're, can be so disconnected so many times between, you know, hospital to clinic to specialty to whatever. And, you know, I really feel like that human connection, even for us as providers to remember that we're all on the same team, even if we're at different points in this patient's journey. It was just really nice. I really appreciated it. Yeah, I love that. And then one other thing you mentioned briefly that I want to touch on again is how, so you said you work two clinic days a week and that you have, your patient panel is 285 patients, which I just think that's probably a key part of why you're so good at what you do is just not having an over populated panel for most institutions or many large academic medical centers. I think it's something like 1,700 patients for a five-day, you know, full-time work week for primary care, which is kind of unsustainable. So that ratio that you're describing seems a lot more conducive to that kind of relationship that you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I feel, you know, I, I think the interesting thing about community health and you know, sort of on a health policy level, is that oftentimes I'll be having conversations with other providers there about how it really is how healthcare should be. (laughs) You know, so it sounds funny to say that about a free and charitable clinic, but I feel like we prioritize the patient and the complex needs of the patient We are thoughtful about referrals and diagnostics. You know, one of the big things that comes up every year is whenever we get, you know, like a new grouping of students or residents or what have you who are used to being able to order, you know, an order set inpatient and get, you know, everybody get, you know, with right upper quadrant pain immediately gets an ultrasound. We have to be super thoughtful about it because we don't have unlimited resources in that way. And I find it as a teaching point really great because it forces my students to have to tell me exactly what it is they're expecting to find from this test and how it will improve this patient's care. I've practiced in FQHCs and had crazy panels before, and it's really nice to be somewhere where I feel like I can really get to know people and follow up with them much more consistently. And again, the way the patients react and respond is the truth of the matter. You know, they they don't want to leave us. So I've had people who cry that they now have insurance and have to leave because this or or you know when I try and encourage them because I think their level of complexity would do better you know trying to get charity care at a major medical center and they don't want to go because they feel safe and comforted and um, well cared for in our setting so I just you know I, I wish we could take this this model and really think about you know how it could help inform things that we're doing on a bigger scale and yeah yeah. Going back to specifically social determinants of health, how can other organizations, large or small, 
get started on trying to tackle some of those issues? Anything practical that you can, or any practical advice that you could offer those practice leaders? I mean, I always think the moral of the community health story is Dr. Um, Gorella, because, you know, here is this individual feels can be feel very overwhelming and isolating to be out there taking care of patients and not being able to, you know, sort of stem the tide of, of, you know, all these very, very ill patients. And he took that step to try and find out what was at the core of the problem in identifying the core of the problem, which was a social determinant of health, which was access to healthcare. He was able to develop this clinic model all around that addressing that core social determinant of health. My vision and hope for other healthcare providers is that we're always looking for that opportunity to address the core fundamental issues because many times we if we don't keep looking, you know, these disparities are just going to keep growing. So, I think looking for root causes of of problems for patient populations and then having a real clear vision a passionate team. You need to have senior leadership buy-in. There's some core components to getting something off the ground and clear goals and objectives. I think community health has kept their mission very straightforward, and that has led to being very successful. It really re- reminds me, though, I was thinking about it, um, about the Margaret Mead quote, never doubt what, uh, that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. And I feel like that is exactly what happened in community health. What started off as this small thing grew to really something that changed the world for many, many people, many of the patients that have crossed through our doors. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Margaret, that you were so insightful and so wise and such a good diagnostician. Well, it was really great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to come share um, some of the amazing work that's going on at Community Health. And I really encourage anyone who's interested in volunteering or wanting to learn more about it to to head on over to our website, uh, communityhealth.org, or reaching out to the um, clinic itself to see about volunteer opportunities. Thank you for listening to this episode from the AMA Steps Forward podcast series. AMA Steps Forward program is open access and free to all at stepsforward.org. Steps Forward can help put the joy back into medicine by offering real-world solutions to the challenges that your practice is confronting today. We look forward to you joining us next time on the AMA Steps Forward podcast series, stepsforward.org.